Good morning, church. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Our text this morning is verses 8 through 16. We're taking up where we left off last week. If you're new with us, we've been studying the book of Exodus uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we have, uh, we have walked with the Israelites out of Egypt and now into the desert, across the Red Sea and into the desert. And we have noticed uh, not only had they had a long, many centuries of trials in Egypt, but they are having their trials as they make their way to the promised land. And the Bible teaches us that all of these stories and all of these trials and all of these battles that are recorded in the Old Testament are recorded for us because Jesus is teaching us that by many battles and trials, we will enter the kingdom of heaven, not earning our way, but, but rather proving the power of the gospel. So far, Rephidim, which is where the Israelites are camped now and literally means a, a place of rest, it, it's proven to be uh, false advertising. They get to Rephidim and they don't have any water. God, at great personal cost to Himself, taking judgment that was due to them, brings water from the rock. But no sooner had they been delivered from this, this uh, near-death experience through dehydration, but they, they head out by God's command and come to uh, another enemy, another human enemy who wants, that, that wants to destroy them, annihilate them just as he promised that the devil would war against the people of God. These are the Amalekites, the first human enemy outside of the Egyptians. And so the people of Israel surely are wondering, what kind of rest is this? Just as you may be wondering. I thought the Lord said, come to me and I'll give you rest. Maybe Rephidim is not false advertising. Maybe the problem instead is our misunderstanding of what true rest is. A true rest is not the absence of trouble, but knowing that we are with Christ in the trouble. And knowing that the battles that come are battles that have come by His sovereignty and that we're on the winning side. Let's look at this text and be prepared once again to be amazed by the gospel and the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. Exodus chapter 17, we begin reading in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, I, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for revealing yourself in all of Scripture, including this one before us, because your word told us that you led your people out of Israel, that you were the rock, that you were working through Moses. Oh Lord, we need a warrior. We're afraid of this battle we're in. And it may not be just the obvious one. Your people are fighting all kinds of battles. All kinds of battles are being brought against us. Battles of our own making from our own sin or battles of the evil one's making. They threaten to discourage us in our walk with you and our, our trek to heaven. There are battles being waged for the souls of those who are listening this morning who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ. And we pray, King Jesus, that you would fulfill your role as king by defeating all your and all our enemies in a way that clearly gets a name for yourself. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. As an English major, I'm glad to see a a trend occurring in the last few years, a, a revived interest in Dante, Dante Alighieri, the 14th century uh, Italian poet who wrote a, a, a long poem that you may be familiar with that the, the the, the popular name Divine Comedy, or the Commedia, as he originally titled it. And it's become very popular, even in our popular culture. Um, a journalist wrote a few years ago, Rod Dreher, a journalist wrote uh, a book called How Dante Saved My Life, or How Dante Can Save Your Life. And uh, I even heard a radio uh, interview a few years ago with with uh, an inner-city teenager from California whose, whose high school English teacher uh, was so inspiring in his teaching Dante that the, that the inner-city youth in his class begged him to start teaching them more insights into the Commedia on the weekend, on Saturday. They interviewed one of these young people in an urban setting where life was dangerous there was never enough of anything. And they asked him, why in the world, why are you interested in this, this old poem from the 1300s? And he said, because I see that that man understood the same enemies I fight. And Dante gives me hope because he describes that uh, justice and right are going to be done someday. 
and those people doing all that bad stuff, well, they're going to get punished and the good are going to be delivered. It's what you can learn from Dante because Dante is writing with a Christian mind. He finds, he opens the poem by saying he was in the middle of his life and he was in the middle of a dark wood and and he didn't think he was going to live. And then Virgil, the poet, the philosopher, comes along and he's going, to give him a, he's going to give him a tour of heaven and hell and tell him how things really are and how they're going to turn out to be. And the reason I think about it now is that Dante says that he wrote the Commedia in order to show people how to, how to leave their, their wretchedness and enter into happiness. And there's a picture in, in, the, in, in, in that tour of hell that, that Virgil leads Dante on, that tour of hell, he comes on a group of people who are following a banner. Now let him take up the story so that you can appreciate it. I saw a banner there upon the mist, circling and circling It seemed to scorn all pause, so it ran on, and still behind it pressed a never-ending rout of souls in pain. These wretches, never born and never dead, ran naked in swarms of wasps and hornets that goaded them the more they fled. There's more to that story, but because it's near lunch, I'm not going to go on. It's a horrible ending. One commentator on that section of Dante said the banner they were following was the me banner. The banner of me. And Dante with a Christian mind is saying there are only two banners. There's, there's, there's only one banner that will bring life. There, there's an infinite number of other banners, as numerous as there are individuals. And you're either following the banner of the conquering Lord Jesus Christ or you're following the me banner. And following the me banner always ends in this life and the next in misery wretchedness. It's not what you want, is it? What we want is what Moses and Joshua and the people of God discovered, that the only winning side is the side Jesus is on, and the, and the only way to live, really live in this world and the next is to live following and holding up the banner of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice from the text how we do that. How we live in such a way that God gets a name for himself. It's a prayer we pray often in this place. Lord, get a name for yourself. Make yourself famous. How do you live in such a way that, you, that the Lord gets a name for himself? I want you to notice, first of all, in verses 8 through 10, you do it by fighting only the Lord's battles. Fighting only the Lord's battles. My, my dad used to tell me, George, never pick a fight. Don't pick fights. But if someone picks a fight with you, finish it. In, in full disclosure, I... I think my dad said, don't pick fights. I think my mother is who said, if somebody picks a fight with you, finish it, which would fit her personality. But uh, it may not be a biblical, it was not expressed from a biblical mind, but it is, 
It is somewhat what God is saying to us. But he would put it this way. Don't pick fights of your own. Don't lift up your own banner. You rally around the banner of the Lord Jesus and you hold up his banner. And you won't have to go finding the fight. The devil will bring the fight to you. And when he does, you rally to my banner and fight with me and allow me to fight through you and for you in such a way that I get all the glory. That's the way the Lord would put it. And uh, what we're finding in this passage, in this, in this battle, is just what God would say, said would happen in Genesis chapter 3. He said, the devil will fight against the seed of the woman, that is, the seed through which the Messiah would come. The, 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 the devil would continually fight against the people of Israel and even up to the time Jesus is put on the cross, trying to stop God's way of salvation. And he continues to fight you and try to discourage your faith and keep you from expanding the kingdom of God. When he brings that fight to you, you must in the Lord's strength fight. Now, some, some warning, some instruction from this passage. One is don't pick, like I said, don't pick fights. Even when the fights are cheap, the people of Amalek fought. The people of Amalek were pirates in the desert. They, they made their living. They built quite a kingdom by plundering people who tried to pass through. And even though we're not given the details in this passage, uh, uh, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 25 just how the Amalekites attacked the Israelites. He, he says they came up uh, on their tail, literally says they came up on their, uh, behind them, Amalek, the Amalekites did, and they took out the faint and the weary and those who lagged behind. It was a cheap shot. It was a blind punch. And, and, and God says, in effect, even when people attack you unfairly, when they fight unfairly, when the devil moves people to fight unconventionally, you must always fight in the way the Lord directs. Now, the Lord gave very specific instructions to Old Testament Israel in the way they were to conduct what He calls holy war in the Old Testament. And what you do, I won't read them all, but, but in Deuteronomy 20, we're given a list. And He says, this is, these are the rules of engagement for my people. You see if you hear a theme. No one gets paid. There's no standing army. You may not keep the spoils or the plunder. Uh, you must only defend the promised land. Only prophets can tell you whether it's appropriate to go to war or not. And when it's time to go to war, you must have a prayer service. Fasting, set yourself apart. And, in case you haven't heard the theme already, he says it very clearly. You must always fight in a way that clearly displays that the Lord is the one who gets the victory. That's what's happening here. The, Joshua and the people of Israel go into the valley and they are taking up arms. Yes, they're acting responsibly. But 
Moses and Aaron and Hur go to the top of the mountain, and this is the way God is going to bring victory. He's only going to bring victory when Moses lifts his staff. And when, they're trying, when, he, when, when he puts the staff down, they're going to lose. He's, what's he saying? I want it to be clear. I want it to be clear to Joshua, to all the people of Israel. I want it to be clear to the Amalekites that I am the one who fights for my people. When that fight is brought to you, God says, here and elsewhere, you must finish the fight. Now, here he says it in a way that's, that's offensive to our tender ears. He says the Amalekites will someday be, will be completely erased. In the Old Testament, this kind of total war or this elimination or, or, or annihilation of an enemy was called haram. Now, that word haram occurs 37 times or so in regard to the Canaanites and nine or ten times in regard to the Amalekites and, and only to the Canaanites and the Amalekites. And that command to, to destroy a whole city is only given in regard to six cities of the Canaanites and the Amalekites. And, and, and a frequent objection to Christianity or the, or the Bible or especially the Old Testament is how could you worship a God who tells people to kill all the women and children in a city? But we've learned a lot. Here's where biblical studies really help us. Archaeological studies help us. The study of ancient documents, especially ancient Near Eastern documents, helps us to understand that God didn't give a command to decimate all of the women and children literally. It can't be because those women and children continue to live afterwards. He tells them not to marry them. He hasn't completely destroyed everything in the city because those cities continue to exist after they occupied the the promised land. It is a manner of expression. It is an ancient Near Eastern custom and a way to describe the total desolation of political and military leaders. God was saying, when you go into that land and those political and military leaders send their forces against you as Pharaoh did to wipe you out as the people of God and to keep the, the redemption through Christ from coming. I want you, I'm going to empower you to cut off the power at the head. You're going to take the battle, battle to the military leaders and the political leaders and I'm going to get a name for myself as I protect you. How do you apply that kind of thing to, to, to our lives today? Well, our, our battles are, <clears throat> are not military battles, at least for most of us, and those military battles that are fought must be fought under the leadership of, of our national leader, those who are given the power of the sword, and they must be conducted according to the historical just war theory of war. But for our sakes, for, our, for most of our sakes, here's, here's the way we put it into practice. God says there will be other fights in your life. The most obvious one is sin. And you must not quit fighting sin in your life until it is defeated or until you die and God glorifies you and removes sin from you. And that is a way to defeat the devil too because he says you resist the devil and he will flee from you. There is nothing that sends the devil fleeing and running like holiness. We have other battles. There are people all over our city, all over our world who are in spiritual bondage. They're in the prison, they're in the prison house of their souls. And they have all kinds of problems that follow from that. How do we fight that battle? 
But we do want to relieve them of their, of their most pressing needs and concerns. But, but we, want to, we want to take the battle to the source of their problem, and that's going to be through evangelism and apologetics. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to urge them to give their lives to Christ, and we're going to, to answer their questions and, and we're going to, to, to seek to topple their idols and to try to defeat those things that are defeating their faith. When there's dissension in the church of Christ, we, we attack it with the reconciling power of the gospel. When there is racism we, in the tradition of the New Testament, we oppose it and we stand against it with gospel righteousness. And and objectify it by gathering together in, in worship and fellowship and friendship. We attack poverty and we attack abortion and we attack heresy and we attack ageism and we track, attack human trafficking and we at, at, attack child abuse and, and uh, uh, abuse of, of women and we attack disease and we attack violence. We attack all of these things because this is where Jesus is already fighting and we join him in that battle banner and we do not quit until that enemy is defeated or until Jesus returns. Second way that we we live in such a way that, that God gets a name for Himself. It's a very unconventional, un- unconventional approach to, to war. Because, you know, in a, in a, in a typical war, in a, a typical engagement, uh, the, the, the warriors uh, uh, puff out their chests and they brandish their weapons and they brag about uh, how how strong and how intimidating and how deadly they are. But, but God says, that, here's the way I want you to wage battle. I want you to advertise your weakness. I want you to let everybody know how unimpressive you are. I want you to let everyone know that you're my warrior. You fight in my strength. Think about David and Goliath. David, I mean, Goliath stands up, nine and a half feet tall, big sword, imposing armaments, armor, and, and he's, he's mocking the people of Israel, the, 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 the military of Israel, and, and so much so that the whole army stands down. And David comes by the Lord's direction without any armor, he couldn't find any to fit him. Little shepherd boy and a slingshot. And what kind of trash does David talk to Goliath? You come at me with shield and sword. I come at you in the name of the Lord. John Calvin said this about, um, about uh, Moses and what Moses wrote. It's, it's very, very significant that we have that Moses wrote here for years, this is just a, a tangent, the, for years people dismissed the authority or the reliability of Scripture because they said, it says that Moses wrote these things, but writing hadn't even been invented yet, it hadn't evolved yet, and now in archaeology we've discovered thousands of manuscripts, Mesopotamian manuscripts that predate Moses' writing by hundreds 
of years. And so Moses says he wrote this, and he wrote it down for us. And he wrote that he was the one who was too weak to hold up his arms. John Calvin says he became the public witness and proclaimer of his weakness, that the glory may be entirely attributed to the greatness and favor of the Lord. Now, what did Moses write about his weakness? It says that he lifted up his hands and he got tired. I got tired. I got so tired they had to bring a stool for me to sit on. I got so tired I couldn't hold my hands up. We humans know that our, our weakness, our, our weakest muscles are, are these that hold up our hands. It's one reason we lift our hands in prayer, because it immediately reminds us how weak we are. Not just for asking the Father to hold us, but uh, we say, Preacher, please don't pray too long because I can't continue to do this. We're immediately reminded of our weakness. And yet Aaron and her came along. And the text says they not only lifted his hands, but they steadied them. That is, he made them faithful. He steadied them. We need other people. By the way, I'm pretty weak by heat right now. Let me wipe this out. Aaron and her steadied his hands so that he could remain faithful. He couldn't have been faithful. He couldn't have continued to pray if they had not steadied him. He wrote not only about the source of his weakness, he wrote down the source of his strength. He says, as long as I lifted up my staff, God's power was demonstrated. What's, what's the staff? We've become well aware of the staff by now. It's the representation of the power of God's presence. So there was no doubt to anyone in the valley as they looked up they eventually had to conclude, the Amalekites said, why is that guy standing there with that stick? What a silly thing. But then they figured it out. When that stick goes up, we lose. When the stick falls down, we win. God is with them. That's the conclusion. And what's he doing with his hands? He's, he not only lifted the staff, but he said lifted both hands. Well, we know this is prayer. Hey, we know it from the rest of Scripture. One commentator, one Old Testament expert says, the Targumists, the Rabbins, the Fathers, the Reformers are all unanimous in their declaration that prayer is lifted up in Scripture by uplifted hands. It's not that we magically make God hear us. It's not that God can't hear us in any other way. But the posture of prayer, prayers in Scripture that we find, standing or kneeling or lifting our hands, they all bend our body in such a way that they force us to recognize, I can't, <clears throat> I can't do this. I am not strong. I am weak. You must fight the battle for me. Psalm 28, 2, Psalm 63, 4, Lamentations 3, 41, 1 Timothy 2, 8, all mention lifting hands in prayer. That's our primary battle. That's our primary weapon, our divinely powerful weapon, prayer. And the, and, and the more we bend our bodies to make that our prayer, the more we convey to ourselves as well as others, I am weak and He is strong. Get a name for yourself. 
The third way that we make sure that we live in such a way that God gets a name for himself is in verses 14 to 16. And it's to brag on Jesus. We, we, don't have to, we don't have to make that case anymore, do we, that, that this is about Jesus. The, the, the book of Jude tells us Jesus led them out of Egypt. We, we clearly understood that when, when, the, when, when Moses struck that rock, that, that he was striking Jesus because the Bible says in, in 1 Corinthians 10 that the rock was Christ. So we can cut straight to the chase and say the way we live in a, such a, in, in a manner that by which God gets a name for himself is that we brag on Jesus. That's what Moses was doing. When he was standing up there on that hill and holding up the banner, the, 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 the staff, the representation of God's presence, he was lifting high the cross, the name of Jesus. It is by our Christ that we succeed. And just in case there's any doubt, we can make the case from the Old Testament itself. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, he grew up among you as a root, that root of Jesse. And the root of Jesse will be the standard around which you rally. The root of Jesse. Jesus Christ is called the standard. He's the one who would later be lifted up in, in numbers in the form of a brazen serpent. And all who look to him would live. We lift up the name of Jesus in our lives. That is, we make it clear to everybody No, no, no. If you see anything successful in my life, it has nothing to do with me. It's because of Christ. When I give advice to you from Scripture, my dear friend, it's, it's, it's not, you mustn't take it as my wisdom. I'm telling you, it's what Jesus does. We make that clear in the way we speak. Moses said, I'm going to lift up a banner And I'm going to say, the Lord, Yahweh Nissi, Yahweh is my banner. And then we lift our eyes to Jesus. I want Joshua to know. I want this written down. I want to build an altar. I want to make it clear. I want Joshua and all all the warriors in the valley to know that the only reason they succeeded because of what was done on the mountain. I remember my theology professor preaching a powerful sermon in chapel one time by saying, brothers, I want you to know, I want you to know, young men, that the, that the, that the victory in that valley had nothing to do with those men in the valley. It had everything to do with that man on the mountain. And the same will be true of your life and my life. We will not get through this pandemic You will not get through your anxiety. You will not get through your economic situation. You will not get through your worries, your family difficulties, your dissension, those people who are attacking you through your pain. You won't get through any of that on your own initiative, on your own resources. You will only get through it by that man on the mountain of Calvary who died 
for you and for me to drip healing water and blood into your wounds and mine. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is a great preacher of the 19th century, and God used him as one of those preachers who brought great revival in, in England, but he was also very, very frank, very honest always about the way he came to Christ, the way he was kept in Christ, about his own battle with anxiety and depression long before it was popular even to claim it. Charles Spurgeon declared his weakness constantly. In one place in his autobiography, he tells a story about his conversion. And he said, interestingly enough, he had been away at, he had been away at, at school and a, and a plague brought him home. They, they closed school. He had to go home because of a plague. And he was under such conviction for sin, he was so desperate, he was looking everywhere for relief. He started going to church. So this Sunday he was home, he wanted to go to church, but there was a, there was a, a tremendous snowstorm and it blocked him from where he wanted to go. And the only choice he had, he said, was a primitive Methodist church. And he was a little bit afraid to go in there because he said, I had always heard that the primitive Methodist sang so loudly it gave you a headache. But he went anyway. He said, my, my soul was hurting so badly, I thought it was worth a headache. So he went in, and, and the snowstorm was so bad, the preacher couldn't make it that morning. So he said, a, a, a man who was obviously not instructed, uh, he had never been trained uh, in, um, in theology, just took it upon himself. He thought the Word had to be brought. So he looked at the text in the Scripture, and he read it. It was Isaiah 45, 22, and the text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And this man started preaching. He said he thought he was a cobbler or, or something, some, uh, just a common tradesman who hadn't had formal formal intellectual training, and the man preached this way. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your fingers, just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. He may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. Man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. Look unto me. Many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourself. Some look to God the Father. No, don't look to Him by and by. You can look to Him by and by. But Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's work, and you have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. Look unto me. Look unto me. I'm a sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm a hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm a dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. Ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm a sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. And then he looked down into the, into the sanctuary. And there weren't many more people in that sanctuary than there are today. Maybe 10 or 15. There are not that many here, by the way. Less than 10. And the, and the preacher saw Spurgeon sitting under the balcony. And he said, young man, you look miserable. And he said he was right about that. Young man, you look miserable. What you need to do is to look to Jesus. Look. Look. Spurgeon said, that's all it took. 
I looked up. I looked to Jesus. And he delivered me from all my fears. He delivered me from my desperation over my sin. He confessed he had struggles with anxiety, depression. He battled sin thereafter, but he never did so again hopelessly because he knew the cure. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. All the while praying, Lord, get a name for yourself. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that the gospel is so simple. We don't have to have a great education. We don't have to be people of means. We don't have to, have, we don't have to be uh, people who are of influence. All we need to do is look to Jesus. I pray, Lord, for that one who is, who is listening or watching and and has never before looked to Jesus, this would be the day of their salvation. And for the rest of us, oh Lord, remind us that we must never get over looking, looking up to Jesus, to find which battles we are to fight, looking to Jesus to be reminded that we fight not in our own strength but in His, and looking to Jesus that He might get a name for Himself. Get a name for yourself, we pray, in our individual lives. Get a name for yourself in, in the gospel-preaching churches of this city and get a name for yourself, Second Presbyterian Church. In Jesus' name we pray with great hope. God's people said together, amen.